listening to Lady Radio, the hottest show this side of Dizzo. Attention, executive shuttle approaching. Guest commander Darren Gray, you are clear for docking. Attention, uh, attention. Second technician, Forrester, to the station bar. I repeat, second technician, Forrester, to the station bar. Joining me in the space station bar this evening is a man who by day works in project management in the field of academic energy research. In his free time, he has invested many hours writing background fiction and lore for the open source role-playing game Tales of Maj Al. He writes computer game inspired poetry and songs, constructs his own procedural roguelike games, and if that wasn't enough to keep him busy, he is also the regular host of a weekly podcast called Roguelike Radio, which has been running since 2011. Welcome to Lave Radio, Darren Gray. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the show. First of all, did I miss anything in your introduction? Uh, let me think. I've been doing some stuff on procedural music these days, and I have also met David Braben. You've already got one off on me then. I'm waiting until the, the launch party to meet up with David Braben and hopefully not make a complete and utter twit out of myself, which I think is the uh, <laughs> is the more likely scenario. So go on, and we'll start with that then. When did you meet David Braben? So it was at a conference last year, a game development conference. It was at Imperial College where I work. Uh, I attended the conference. He was giving the keynote speech. He was talking about Elite and about how when he and Ian originally made it, they didn't have much in the way of resources. They had to use procedural techniques to get the most out of the tiniest little slivers of RAM that they had available. After the conference, he was heading to the lunch area, and he obviously looked confused and lost. I was like, David, are you looking for the lunch area? He said, uh, yes, yes, I am. I said, oh, well, it's just through here. And at that moment, I thought, I paused and I thought, now, should I break down? and kneel before him <laughs> and say how much, just how much fun he's given me in my life, how, how valuable impression he's made on me with Frontier and, and with all my game-playing years. But I didn't. I just opened the door for him and he went through, and that was it. <laughs> so not that dramatic a story, but I will say, you know, for everyone listening, he could have died of hunger if it wasn't for me. <laughs> or if it wasn't for you, Darren, yeah. Elite Four would never have been made. Yeah. I'd like to make that clear from the start. Um, a particularly cool thing is that that same conference happened this year, and David wasn't at it, but I was actually speaking at that conference this year on game development. So chip my shoulder there for I was speaking at the same conference that David Braben once spoke at. Wow. And were you delivering the keynote speech this year? Oh, I was not. <laughs> I was talking about procedural techniques and game design, which is sort of the same thing David was talking about. So it's quite cool. Well, you mentioned about procedurally generated music. That's something that I haven't come across. Tell us a little bit more about that. So it's something I've only very recently been getting into. I don't really know anything about music, so I've been learning on the fly. I made a game recently called Mosaic, which has procedurally generated environments, and you affect these environments as you move about. And the way you infect, affect them then affects how the game produces its music. It has a bunch of notes in it, different tones and different scales, 
every quarter of a second it decides which notes to play based on how the map is laid out and how you've been playing. So you, you always get very different music, and as the game progresses, the tone of the music shifts with the way that you've filled out the map and you've gone through the game. Uh, so it doesn't always sound great, but it's quite cool to be able to just generate music on the fly like that. And some people are much better than me. I'm just starting out. But it's it's fun to integrate some of the gameplay bits and some of the game environment bits with the music that's actually going on, having everything wound together like that. Well, I'll come back to that in just a second. But for those people that are listening to the, the show that haven't come across the Rogue uh, the roguelike universe, maybe you can give them a little bit of background about the sort of stuff that you're actually creating. So Rogue was a computer game back in the 80s, which was like a, a role-playing game where you're going into a dungeon, you have to try and find this artifact, and you're fighting orcs and goblins and things like that. And the environments in it were entirely procedurally generated. So every time you played, they were all running you. You get a dungeon that no one had ever seen before. And things were randomly placed, and there's all these sorts of interactions. And when you died, you had no save game. You went back to the beginning. You started a whole new, different experience. And this spawned a whole genre called roguelikes. And some of the more popular ones that people might be aware of are Nehack or Dwarf Fortress. Uh, I make these myself, uh, and I run a podcast looking at the design elements of these sorts of games and, and looking at how different procedural techniques can be used and different gameplay elements can be wound together. But it's an exciting genre to work in because there's a lot of interesting stuff you get through this procedural generation. Frontier and Elite and all those games, as we know, use procedural generation to make this whole set universe. And it was one of the things actually that got me into this. So out of all of the ones that you mentioned there, the one that jumped off the page for me was uh, Dwarf Fortress. Now, that's the one I do recognize, but from my limited understanding of it, it's all sort of, was it all ASCII keys for your maps? I mean, it was quite a basic graphical uh, interface, yeah. is that right? Yeah, a lot of roguelikes are like this. They've got either really simple graphics or no graphics at all. Just got ASCII characters representing everything. So you'll have a hash symbol as a wall, and the player itself will be an at sign moving about or something like that. And it lets you concentrate on making the whole environment detailed and interesting without having to make graphics for every individual little possibility. So Dwarf Fortress, if you've played it, you'll know that it's immensely complex. And you could never have a graphical game that actually represents the level of complexity in that game. It would just be too much work. Uh, so a lot of roguelikes are like that. They've got a lot of detail to them. Concentration tends to be on these procedural environments and on the entities that you find in it and interesting interactions between things. To me, the obvious parallel there between obviously what you're doing now and obviously the Elite universe is the fact that certainly the original Elites, it was quite basic. I mean, it was advanced at the time, but it was quite basic in terms of what the graphics and the representations were. The rest was all just filled in from your own imagination. Yeah. And I'm assuming it's similar with the uh, with the Rogue universe as well. Yeah, it's really similar. I remember one thing that David Braven talked about in his speech was how in the original Elite, when they were trying to design the ships, uh, they knew they only had a certain number of polygons to work with. So they had to cheat a lot. They had to, you know, they came up with a model for the Sidewinder, found that doesn't really work. So let's change the line here. Okay, let's, less polygons now. We'll go with that. And another th little trick they did was they only simulated half of each ship so that they'd reflect the other half. So they only had to have half the polygons needed. But that's why all the ships are symmetrical because they, oh, yeah. they had to duplicate it across like that. It was these ways of saving these tiniest bits of RAM that you've got so much of these days. But yeah, I really think that that wireframe model style lends itself to much more interesting imagination around what it could look like. And Frontier, I think, kind of carried that on. You know, it was more blocky and stuff, but you still had the, your imagination filling in the details that were missing. Yeah, absolutely agree. So just going back to that point about procedurally generated music, 
is this the sort of thing where the game will actually you know, change the music depending on, say, which character you've just met? So if you've come up against, say, an aggressive character, it will use notes of a certain, obviously, a lower pitch to get the atmosphere across, or is it all just random? Well, the game that I've made doesn't quite do that, though there are other games that do that. The game that I made, that the more enemies on screen, the more unharmonious notes there are, the more discord there is in the music. Most of the music is very string-based, whereas the enemies produce brass notes. So uh, as the music is playing, the more enemies that are on the screen, the more you get these brass notes flaring up, and uh, it can sound quite intense. Plus, the more enemies are on the screen, the faster the tempo of the music. Interesting. So it really does lend to the atmosphere of you know, the experience that you're playing. Yeah. It's... One cool thing I found from it is that when I first released it, I thought it sounded pretty good. And then I got lots of mixed reactions. Some people thought it sounded good. Some people thought it was impossible to listen to. I saw, <laughs> it wasn't until I saw a video of someone else playing that I realized it sounds completely different based on how you play. Right. So basically, they were playing it wrong, is my... <laughs> <laughs> As the game's designer, you were just players were playing your game wrong. Exactly. If you play the <laughs> optimal way to advance the levels, you get quite nice sounding music because of how it's designed. But if you fiddle about and waste time in certain areas, then you get very bad music. As <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, a general point about game design. Game design is absolutely fine up until you actually put a player in front of it and then it goes horribly wrong. Oh, they're such a nuisance, these players. <laughs> Always getting in the way. I know. Cool. Okay, well, maybe you should give us a little bit of background. Obviously, you've, you've met David Braben. Frontier and Elite is obviously something very dear to your heart, but maybe take us back to you know, your first introductions to the Elite genre. So my first introduction was with Frontier on the Amiga. I think I was about 13, 14 when it came out. Yeah, I had an Amiga 1200 that I was very proud of. <laughs> uh, still am very proud of it. It's gone, sadly gone now. But yeah, I, when I played Frontier, that was wow. Couldn't believe it. On this 800 kilobyte floppy disk, you had the galaxy and you had all these planets and you had you go into the systems, you got all these details about the the rotational time of each of the planets around this binary system. And uh, it was just amazing. It was mind-blowing how much detail there was. And on top of this galaxy simulator was, of course, the gameplay. And you can go be all sorts of different things. You can go side with the Imperials or the Federation, or you can go try hunt bounties and go try trading. You could fuel scoop suns. You could do just whatever you wanted. I couldn't believe it. There's nothing else like it. I still don't think there's anything else quite like it. Uh, so that really took over my life for quite a long time. Later on, I did play Elite. and It was a lot better combat-wise, Elite. But that wasn't something I was so interested in the combat side. I really loved the exploration elements in Frontier. And I thought that was better in Frontier. And then uh, a friend had first encounters on the PC... I didn't have a PC. I was still sticking with my Amiga for many years after the Amiga was dead. So I didn't get to properly play First Encounters. But from what I heard from my friends, it was very buggy and stuff. So I wasn't missing out on... Well, at the time, before it got patched up, I wasn't missing out on stuff. No, I think, to be honest, Darren, that sounds very similar to my experience. Although I think I was a little bit younger when I played Frontier. I still played it on my... Well, I would call it my A1200, but it was a bit of a, a mismatch, actually, because I had to wait until Amiga went under before I bought my A1200. And the only thing I could actually get was a, a CD32 console that they were still making. And then wow. I had to import a uh, an SX1, I think it was called, an SX1 module that plugged into the back of the CD32 that let you plug in a keyboard and hard drive and a mouse and stuff and turn it basically into a fully functional A1200 with a CD drive. I went the other way around with my A1200 because I cut a hole in the side of it so I could attach a cable from the motherboard 
going out to a tower unit, which had a PSU, a CD-ROM drive, a two-speed CD-ROM drive, not <laughs> not these one-speed CD-ROM drive. I had two-speed CD-ROM drive, <laughs> and I think a, a four-megabyte hard disk. It was massive. It was just amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like you, I, I kept on with that awful hybrid of a machine uh, way after uh, the actual Amiga had died off. So uh, Frontier First Encounters had been and gone before I got PCs. Um, and at that yeah. point, it was just, I think I was at the university and you know, doing other things and didn't actually revisit Elite First Encounters until the Kickstarter. And uh, now, unfortunately, it's just it's just too dated for me to get into it, unfortunately. But Frontier on the Amiga was still, for me, it was the, the pinnacle. I loved that game so much. Frontier I still revisit on Amiga emulator. I think it has aged a little bit better than First Encounters for me anyway, because First Encounters had these textures in it. And uh, once you start adding textures, you then you start approaching the whole problem where it, it ages badly with time. The the blocky yeah. graphics of Frontier and the line graphics of Elite, they leave enough to the imagination that you can really abstract things out. Yeah, I still do like to play Frontier. Okay, well, what about the Kickstarter? At what point did you first hear about the Kickstarter? When did you get involved with it? Well, I was following David Braben on Twitter because I was always very interested in his Raspberry Pi stuff. So yeah. I think I heard about it within minutes. Within the first hour of the Kickstarter, I backed it. I remember looking at it and thinking there's no video. There's no, there's no video pitch. What's going on? Is this a serious thing? Uh, it almost looked like a fraud at first. So I was a bit wary at first, thinking, uh, I'm not sure, because I'm a bit anti-Kickstarter. There's a lot of Kickstarters that seem very money-grubbing. I was like, well, I'm not sure about this. But then well, it is elite. And, uh, <laughs> and there was a lot of stuff going around Twitter at the time. Uh, people saying this is just a cash grab, et cetera, et cetera. But I did know from constantly checking Frontier's website, they always had Elite Four kind of hinted on there, or oh, we'll do it someday sort of thing. So I did yeah. know it wasn't this wasn't just a, a cash grab, that they, this was something they wanted to do. And it, because of the whole Raspberry Pi stuff that David's done, I did have some faith in him as in sort of a moral side of things, you know. Also, I felt really guilty because I never actually paid for Frontier. I pirated it off. Yeah. you're really going to admit that live on air. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm really sorry, David. <laughs> if you haven't listened, I'm really sorry. There was a, a there was a uh, confessions thread on the forums actually, and I added my thing in there. I, I look back and think, why the hell did I do that? Because I got so much fun out of that game. But I even went to the extent of photocopying the entire manual. It would have been less effort to just bloody buy the game. <laughs> but yeah, I, it's like one of my points of shame. I, that, but back then on the Amiga, it's like it was seen as just the default thing. Everyone just pirated games. It was such a different culture than than now, where you kind of where a lot of developers are struggling and things, and you don't really th- you know you're aware more of the economic impact. But yeah, so I had this guilt in my back of my head and thought, well, I owe him for at least two games, um, <laughs> and you know some of the best games I've had. So yeah, I think I pledged initially at around fifty quid. Right, and then I kept following it, and sometimes I was thinking, "Oh, hold on, Darren, I'm going to stop you there." You didn't pledge fifty quid. You, you basically, you just gave David the the money you owed him. Yeah, really. Yeah, I did. So, obviously, <laughs> um, but not even that. If you consider interest, like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I didn't. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I kept watching it and kept thinking it was quite a tough time of year for me. It was around Christmas, and I was moving house and stuff in London, which is the worst place to move house. Uh, just, yeah. yes. And I kept thinking, maybe I should pull it down a bit. But every time I kept looking at the page, I think maybe I should pull it down a bit. I was thinking, oh, but if I add another five quid, 
<laughs> and then you think, oh, but if I get ten quid, and then they added in all the you know the extra starting options and things, I was like, oh, I, I really am going to have to go higher on this. So I ended up jaunting up to about a hundred and five or so. Right. Okay. And that was kind of the limit, which yeah, I was going to be broke if I gave much more, as well as considering backing books and obviously the anthology Kickstarter. Well, this is it, and this is the thing that um, you know, I'm probably not going to confess up too loudly about, but obviously I, I went for DDF access on the actual main Kickstarter itself, but I also backed pretty much every other project going to help authors over the line. So even though I'm only confessing to spending enough to get into the DDF, actually if you do the awful calculations of totaling up all the other projects that you backed in relation to the kickstarter campaign yeah it's a ridiculous amount of money that the fans have actually put into getting this up and running so why don't we just go on from there then talk about the uh, the books and specifically your involvement with tales from the frontier how did you get involved with that well i only found out about the frontier forums after the kickstarter started so i started lurking on the forums and i heard about the writer pack things coming out and I was like oh I'd really like one of those but I didn't really feel confident in putting up my own kickstarter like a couple of others did I was tempted to I was thinking about it but I don't have like a full novel to my name like Drew does uh, or that sort of community history so I was sort of thinking about doing a book of short stories like doing kickstarter myself for a book of short stories uh, but then also thinking well I don't know if I have the really the authority to do this so I didn't feel confident enough to do that myself but then when I was I saw pretty early on when the anthology went up, when Chris Booker started it, and thought, ooh, this is perfect. I can get in and have a short story for only 50 quid. And I think I was the fourth person to grab a writer slot on that. Uh, and I was really glad I did because they disappeared pretty quickly. Yeah. And, yeah, and I haven't looked back because that, that was a fantastic opportunity. I'm really happy Chris started that off. It was such a wonderful idea to you know, get a whole community-based thing. So you jumped on the um, Elite Anthology, you're probably what you said, the fourth person in. But what was it like for you as being part of you know, a small community of writers watching the Kickstarter for the anthology unfold and seeing whether or not you're going to get over the line and, and the Kickstarter journey for anthology? Well, that was tense because a lot of people were worried about the main Kickstarter. I never was worried about it because I have followed a lot of Kickstarters before. I know the funding pattern they had and... Elite Dangerous was really comfortable from a very early stage. But the anthology, for a long time for the anthology, the writer's packs were what made up the vast majority of the funds for it. And it looked like it would just die. Uh, that, you know, the only contributions, the, the only non-writer contributions would be little small things. It wasn't really till coming up to the last day, which, you know, ending on the same day as the Elite Dangerous Kickstarter, that we then saw a big search come in. I think a lot of books felt were ending around the same time and got a big surge. So I think it kind of, it lacked the confidence that the game was being made to make sure that the book should be made as well. Yeah, once that confidence was there, once people could see that Elite Dangerous was surging over the line, they felt they, felt they could back us as well. Uh, so that was good. But yeah, it was pretty tense. And I was, we were doing a lot of communications about how can we try and entice more backers in? What sort of things should we do? Should we do physical book runs? That sort of thing. And uh, worrying, well, if we do physical book runs, but then we only just scrape over the goal, then we'll have a funding shortfall and things like that. Um, there was a lot of tense discussion about that. I'm happy that it, it turned out. We went over the line and then enough extra that we can do print runs for those that requested it. Fantastic. It's one of the ones that I'm really looking forward to because you've got such a such a variety within just one book. I think it's going to be really exciting. So what about your own writing background? Obviously, 
in the introduction, I'd said that you've done some writing background fiction for you know an existing game world. What's been your other experience, and what uh, what makes you confident that you've got this story inside you? Well, most of it's written, so that helps. <laughs> but in terms of writing, I mean, I've been writing from a very young age. Never anything too serious, but it's, it's something that I'm always doing. Sometimes just little bits of poetry or things. Sometimes fun stuff, sometimes serious stuff. A lot of the games that I make, I've made my own games, and a lot of them feature you know, intense writing stuff. Uh, I've always dreamed of writing a whole novel myself. It's one of those things that I think a lot of people dream of. Yeah, definitely like a big ambition to me. And I get a lot of compliments from my writing. And for the computer game Tales of Majayal, I've written about a novel's worth of lore that's in the game. It's about an eighth of the amount of lore that's in the whole of the game Skyrim, which was done by a team of 100 people. So I'm pretty proud of the fact that I've got like a, a good volume of writing in that. And uh, people keep praising the game. It's one of the, the game's lore and the game's writing. It's one of the things that comes up a lot when people review the game. They say it's got immensely good writing for uh, an independent game. So, yeah, I've never done sci-fi before. Yeah, it's, it's just Wizards in Space, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, you tell me. Is it just Wizards in Space? No, what about your actual story within the anthology? Tell us a little bit about that. So, my story is about a bounty hunter that wants to get to elite status. And she's very close. To put her over the line, she's looking for a very special target called the Silver Comet. Uh, and this turns out to be quite an adventure. That's about all I'll say. One thing that's come about, actually, with the, the whole Kickstarter backers thing is that we gave people the opportunity to pledge to have a character in the book, that would be able to name and give some details of a character in the book. And I had my story planned already, and I had several characters that I thought were kind of open slots. I could customize these characters to be for whoever comes forward. I didn't want to change the main character, because I thought it's quite an individual thing. It's, I had this idea of a female bounty hunter, uh, a very specific background and stuff to her. Uh, but one of the backers said that he wanted to have his daughter represented in one of the novels, and his daughter has cerebral palsy. And he said it would be interesting to see someone with disabilities in a story. And when I saw this, I thought, wow, this is really interesting, actually. It's something I don't know a lot about, so I did some research into it. came up as this is an interesting writing challenge. So I've ended up changing the story now to feature his daughter as the, well, someone fashioned after his daughter as the protagonist and she will have cerebral palsy and it's reshaped the story to actually have that as a big motivation that you know her condition reflects her personality and a lot of her motivations so that's been an interesting thing that's come about through the whole kickstarter process that wouldn't have happened otherwise wow that's fascinating and it just highlights again what sort of variety we're going to have with this anthology that's obviously one of the, I would say, probably one of the main challenges you're facing. What are some of the others that you're coming across in terms of constructing this project? Well, I've done a lot of games writing before for this game, Tales of Material. But I've always had the game in front of me to help, uh, to help <laughs> frame the writing and, and to say what is realistic and what isn't. I initially planned this story based on Frontier because I thought like the physics and everything will be the same. And it turns out a lot of things like hyperspace and stuff are changing. So... Yeah, some things are changing and I'm having to tweak things to keep up or leave things kind of to be decided. You know, there's grey parts of the plot and I don't have names for any locations at the moment. I've just put in planet X, planet Y, things like that. Once we have a star map, I can go back and say, all right, this will fit in here and that will fit in there and that will fit in there. Yeah, it's quite hard 
I want to have a piece of fiction that represents the Frontier universe, the elite universe. If you look at the stories that came with Frontier and that came with Press Encounters, there's a bunch of short stories with them. Some of them were quite interesting as stories, but a lot of them didn't actually, for me, tie in that well with how the game itself played. So I really wanted to make sure that you know, capturing the essence of combat and bounty hunting and a few things like that. Uh, but without being able to directly play it and, and feel how combat feels in the game, uh, it's a bit of a challenge to, to write that. Now, I will have alpha access come the time, so I will be able to modify the story and go back, but it's a bit of a challenge in writing at the moment. Thankfully, I'm not having to do a whole novel and retcon it later, uh, <laughs> like some of the others. That's like quite a challenge, having to do a whole novel. And, and you know, that's going to be such a, a re-editing work when, when things change and when you get the hands in the game and decide, actually, it'd be much better if you know I tinted this cockpit blue like it is in the game, things like that. <laughs> so there's going to be all sorts of little things like that, I think. So at what stage are you currently at with the story now? Has it gone through approval? Have you gone yeah. through first draft? The synopsis was approved ages ago. I, I sent it to Michael Brooks. The only response I had back was, that's all fine. Just make sure that the explosions are suitably fictional. <laughs> now, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm going to have lots of boom, bang, wazoo, wah! <laughs> Just to make sure that's a fictional explosion. Please be aware, reader. Fictional. Kaboom! Um, so yeah because this thing's like a hyperdrive overloading and explosion and that probably won't happen in the game but he's making sure if I have this in the story that it's done in such a way that yeah it, it sounds suitably fictional as well uh, I might need to revise those sorts of things later following further feedback but that was all the explosion the, that was all the feedback I had make explosions fictional and I thought grand I can work with that and I've been working on it since. I've had the whole change of character, and that's what changed the story. Now, I had the synopsis very detailed and very written down, and it is mostly done now, but I keep going back and re-editing some things, and there's a few bits. The combat scenes in particular, I haven't written, because I know the outcome of the combat, and I know going into the combat, so I've got everything surrounding them, but uh, those are some of the harder ones to write with some of the detail at the moment. But pretty soon I'll have, those, I'll have some sort of draft of those written, and I'll submit it to Frontier. And that will hopefully get approved. Uh, I knew that there was going to be trouble getting things fitting in with Frontier and having to match the game and stuff. You know, I'm used to game writing, so I had an idea that they're going to be strict about certain things. So it was very deliberate when choosing my story and choosing the things that will happen in the story to, that I was choosing something that I thought would fit in fine. Uh, and I think that should all be pretty okay. That If there are any changes that need to be made, this should be pretty minor. We've talked a lot about community involving the Elite universe. Obviously, we've got the community now from the Kickstarter. We've got the community of people that played the original Elite and obviously the Frontier. But the anthology is a bit of a unique one. What's the community like within the anthology writers themselves? So we have our own sub-forum, and a few of our backers are in there as well. Some of the people that, that pledge higher for sort of editor access. And there is a lot of chatter in there about what, sort of organizational side of things. Chris has just put up a website uh, at elite-anthology.co.uk. Please do visit. You know, a lot of us involved in giving advice on that, and we put together a little newsletter-type thing for our backers. So there's been a lot of coordination. Some people aren't very active. Some people are very active. Uh, I think I'm one of the more active ones. I think at different times, people have been in and out of activity there. A lot of the discussion goes on at the Writers' Forum, but we have a lot of stuff in the Anthology Forum as well. People are very friendly with each other. We have... Little disagreements on style here and there, but it's friendly disagreements. 
yeah, it's quite nice. It, it's nice having this community of writers you can bounce ideas off. Some people have been struggling with their ideas, or they've got multiple ideas, and they're like they posted saying, you know, what do you guys think? And it, it's led to lots of back and forth and so on. Uh, it's quite nice to have that. It's really very valuable as in a creative role to be able to pass ideas back and forth with people and to be able to put public an idea and have it be shot down or held up and not worry too much about people judging you for that. Yeah, it's pretty much a safe environment for feedback. Yeah, exactly. So obviously we had Lisa on last week. She mentioned about the fact that with the anthology, you're trying to get some themes or some characters that are going to run through the whole book. Can you give us some more insight into that and also maybe how it impacts on your story? So the original Stories of Life on the Frontier that came with the Frontier box, it had a number of stories in. They're all separate stories, but what you tend to have was characters referenced in different ones or locations referenced. So you have this sense that they're all in the same universe. So we'd like to do the same for ours wherever possible. And it will just be minor stuff. And nothing's been decided yet. We're going to try where possible to have kind of like a circular loop that, you know, story one will reference story two, story two will reference story three, kind of go around in a circle like that. Just to try and give a sense that there's a consistent universe here. Now, this might not be possible in all of them, and it might be really, really subtle in places, uh, but it's not going to be sharing characters or anything like that, uh, or at least not in a significant manner. It will more be little nods just to, to give that flavor and that sense of consistency. One of the things that I don't think I asked you earlier on was, uh, have you actually got a title for your story, and are you prepared to share it? Uh, Yes, I've got a title, and it's on our website, elite-anthology.co.uk. You can see a number of the titles and synopsis up there. Uh, Mine is called The Comet's Trail, subject to change. I originally started off with a title called Elite Hunter, but then I thought, if everyone starts using the word elite in their title, this is going to get really confusing. So I switched then to The Comet's Trail. Fantastic. And the anthology project itself, can people still back it or is it now closed for all pledges? We're looking into adding a PayPal button to our website so that people can pledge to get a copy of the ebook or the printed book when we get around to that. Uh, we haven't got that up yet, but we will be getting that up in future. You mentioned that you also packed uh, some of the other projects, some of the other writing projects. What other projects did you actually back? Drew's are backed specifically because he had this history to him. Uh, you know, lots of books, really proven history there. Kate's are back, because that looked quite interesting, the whole humorous side of things. Uh, Alan's are back, because he's been doing some amazing work on constructing the whole universe and giving people advice and things. He's been very active, uh, you know, general writing advice and stuff. So I'm very happy to back his. I think that might be it. I was tempted to back the RPG, but I don't have any friends that play Elite. I don't have any friends that play role-playing games. So trying to find friends that play both would be quite difficult. But I do really want those dice. If there was like, <laughs> just buy the dice, that would be great. Uh, a lot of the other books are sort of tempted to back, but then they all seem quite comfortable about reaching their goals. Plus, well, I can always get them later if they're good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and out of those projects or the other projects, which ones are you personally excited about? Drew's looks really cool from all the stuff that he's given. Uh, I really wish I'd backed Supermassive, actually, because that looks really cool. Uh, I can't remember his name, but he's, he seems to have gone pretty far in it. Yeah, that sounds like a, a really exciting one. Supermassive is by Andre, so uh, don't ask me what his second name is because it's actually quite difficult to pronounce. But yes, Andre from Australia is doing Supermassive. Yeah, yeah I must admit, I'm quite excited about it as well. I've not followed the others so closely, but I probably will do once I'm a bit less busy and I've written my own story. 
Fair enough. Okay, well, going back to the actual game, Elite Dangerous, final question. Your blue sky thinking, what would you like to see in the Elite Dangerous game universe? I'd really like to see some stars and maybe some, some spaceships. <laughs> so the game has to have stars, it has to have spaceships. Yeah, that's it, that's, it'll be that's a the bit bare minimum for you, is it? It'll be disappointing if it doesn't have those. To be honest, I kind of want it to surprise me. I'm not thinking too much. I've been trying to avoid a lot of the discussion threads. Some get a bit crazy. I'm just trusting Frontier to make me an amazing game. Uh, I'm pretty sure they will. Otherwise, I, I will meet David Braven again, and it will not be so pleasant. You will not show him the way I to the <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> Great stuff, Darren. Well, before we close this off, is there anything you'd like to pimp? Well, uh, I've got an excellent profile on elite-anthology.co.uk. And it's got links to all of my stuff on there, so feel free to check it out. And on Twitter, I'm dgrayzero. If you want to follow me, I mostly talk about game stuff. Perfect. And if people wanted to listen to you on your own podcast? Roguelikeradio.com. Brilliant stuff. Well, that's going to do us, Darren. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak to us, and we will catch you soon, sir. Thank you very much for hosting me. Lab Station is beautiful as always. Take care. Cheers, Darren. Bye, then. say that uh, the game is pronounced Tales of Majeal, but no worries. Okay. In his free time, he has invested many hours writing background fiction and lore for the open source role-playing game Tales of Majeal. What? Majeal. Okay. In his free time, he has invested many hours writing background fiction and lore for the open source role-playing game Majeal. In his free time, he has invested many... <laughs> Don't start. Tales of Marge Al... Um... It's a crap game title.